We will be in uh, Genesis 4 today. Um, so if, you, if you're there or you, uh, you, can, you can stay there, if you, if you haven't gotten there, I'd encourage you to get there. We'll be reading through the entirety of Genesis 4 today, uh, but I want to frame it up actually uh, here with, uh, with words from, uh, from James 4. So I would ask uh, that if you're physically able to, you would stand out of reverence for God's word as we read uh, how he has revealed himself to us in James 4 verses 1 through 3. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. This is the weighty but glorious word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. The way of Cain shows up something like this. Keeping up with the Joneses, climbing the corporate ladder, the rat race. These are all common images uh, or the lenses that we pick up through which we view reality. They're ways that we maybe use to justify our longing for more, our striving for significance, our relational attentions with those not giving us love or respect we feel we deserve. But I want to clarify that they are simply a lens. The rat race, the corporate ladder, the Joneses, they're simply a lens. They're not reality itself. You see, we're in the book of Genesis, and we're looking at God's kindness as he's revealed through the Spirit and Moses to explain some of these deeper realities to our lives. You see, on the surface level, the tensions, the frustration that we have kind of, kind of makes us wonder if we're broken, makes us wonder if we've got it all, makes us wonder if we've arrived. But beneath that is a heart condition of jealousy, a heart condition, fear of man, uh, a heart condition towards pride. See, Genesis 3 was, was written with the intent. It's literature, but literature with a purpose. Genesis wasn't written, as we've talked about, to, uh, to explain how long a day was, to, to talk about dinosaurs. Now, maybe you can go that direction and see some things in there, but that's not the first intent. The big reason Genesis was written is to explain why, to explain the meaning of what, of what we do, of, of how we are, of why we are. Why did God create us? Why did God create And then from those answers, we may understand maybe the hows. How then do we relate to God? How do we relate to ourselves? How do we relate to others and our creation? Last week, our brother Andrew uh, preached to us, you know, uh, on, on the fall, on Genesis 3. The whole thing goes upside down because some people decide to go a different way than God instructs. Today, we're going to find out that there is a way that we take more often than not. It's the way of Cain. We're going to read this story here. And as we read through it, we're literally just going to read through it. I'll pause, you know, as I do. But there's a structure that, that emerges. We're going to see that we are very much like Cain. So scene one, uh, here is a, uh, I can give you an outline here for, for some help as we read this. Uh, in, in verses one through 16, we're going to get scene one. It's the way of Cain. 
It starts with a line in verse 1. Uh, scene 2, then, uh, starts in verse 17. has a very similar line. Uh, gives us a structure there, the spread of sin. And then scene 3 also starts in verse 25 with another similar line. And it gives us a seed of hope. So these are the scenes. This is how this, uh, this narrative will develop. It is literature. We'll read it as literature, but we'll understand that God intended to communicate his deep historical philosophical truths through this, through this uh, genre. I want to hear it as it presents itself. In the end, we'll find that no one will crush this serpent. Only Christ and his blood will give us the power to take not the way of Cain, but the way of Christ. So what we have set up here before we enter in is a question. There are a lot of questions that Genesis is, is answering, seeking to answer that we can, we, can, uh, we can assume. But there's one question, a big question, that, that presents itself here uh, in, 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 ch- in chapter 3 that introduce a question that we should keep, not just for today, but through the whole Old Testament. Whenever, we, whenever we're reading the Old Testament, this question should be there. This is the question that in a few weeks will be shaping our Advent experience. Uh, it's this question of, it says there's a promise that a serpent will be crushed. Who will crush the serpent's head? This is the question of the Old Testament. Who will crush the serpent's head? Who will defeat sin? Who will move us back to the garden? So we'll begin our story. In verse 1, the way of Cain. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and Abel. Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. Now I want to pause there. Remember, we're reading ancient literature right now. As literature, Genesis is shaping the characters. You see, every, we, we believe that every word is inspired by the Spirit, and though it has some meaning to it, and it shapes how we should understand the text, which is how we should understand our lives. What's happening here? Why do we add the idea of their occupation? Well, let me read this again. Abel was a keeper of sheep. This idea of keeping appeared already in Genesis 2. It's God's design for man to keep creation in the garden. It's shaping the character of Abel. We should already know at this point before the story unfolds, he's the good guy. He's doing what he's supposed to do. Well, then let's hear about Cain here. Cain was a worker of the cursed ground. See Genesis 3.17. One guy is doing the keeping. The other guy is working the curse. This is a way in which ancient literature and literature of all kinds is suggesting we should understand these two. So now we kind of know what's how this plot going to lay out. What's going to happen here? Let's read verse 3. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So... Cain was very angry. Uh, The Hebrew here is literally, it burned hot to Cain. That is, he was fuming mad. And we know uh, that this showed because we read on, and his face, uh, and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your face fallen? In the Josh Casey version of Genesis, the Lord says to Cain, I got to be like that. It's not my fault. It's not Abel's fault that your heart's nasty. Now, I want to go into this idea of, of what about these sacrifices? What about these offerings? What are we doing here? Why did they need to offer? Or why did, how did 
God decide one or the other? What's at the, the stake here? Um, so our brother, uh, Doug Fern, probably even right now, is preaching uh, this text as well. And he and I had just had a, just a, a wonderful conversation. I, I, uh, <laughs> an increasing uh, line that, I, that I, I end up praying, you know, a lot, or just like yelling in the car with joy oftentimes uh, each week is, praise God for Doug Fern. Man, that guy is uh, just a gift to the church. And he is preaching this text right here. And he's only taken the first 16 verses. And he's reading 1 John and how it explains this offering, this idea of right offering, this idea of right sacrifice. Now, I could have taken about that much space of time right now to just explain this, but I thought that I would send you to his sermon that he'll be, uh, that he'll be preaching now and hear these two sermons in conversation with each other because he has such a treat for the people on North Campus. And now when you listen to, this, to the podcast, for you as well, there is something great there about how we come to worship, our hearts when we come to worship. I want to focus on what happens after God says, this guy, not that guy, and the jealousy in our own hearts. So that's where we'll go with this, the way of Cain. But get yourself on the Parkview website, get yourself the, uh, that, that podcast. I'll actually post it to our Facebook uh, group for easy access. The point here, the very fast point here, is the content of the offering, vegetables or grains or whatever, opposed to animals is not the issue. It's the heart. And Cain's heart is nasty. And then God warns him in verse 7, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you but you must rule over it. Now, uh, I saved this for you guys because I know you like it. Um, we have uh, Genesis 4-7. Oh, we have, uh, we have Genesis 4-7. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. I've, I've, I've labeled it there. If you want to go back to uh, verse, uh, oh, what is it, 3-16, Genesis 3-16, you'll read, and its desire shall be, uh, your desire shall be contrary to your husband but he shall rule over you. This is what God speaks to uh, Eve as a product of the curse. Its desire, sin will desire to be contrary to you, Cain. So also, you, woman, will be contrary to your husband, but then he says, Cain, you must rule over the sin, but man must rule over you. There is a very similar wording and a parallel here. Okay, what I'm not saying is woman equals sin. I'm not saying that. That's not the parable. The parallel. What I am saying is there are a lot of parables showing how what happened with Adam and Eve gets played out here with Cain. And as we hear the Bible, we're going to see repetitions of how we all do the same thing. Another thing that we're going to see, though, is this idea of the inversion. This is part of the curse. The part of the curse is, is man above woman, and it flips right? And that's the tension that's there, part of the curse. But right here in, in, in Genesis 4, we're going to see uh, man, humankind above sin. And it flips. It's crouching at the door. Don't let it take you over because that's not how it's designed to go. You have a choice and he's putting it right there. You have a choice. Will you choose the way of Cain? Will you choose a better way? And what we end up finding is that God places that responsibility right there for Cain. If you, are, if you are over it, then you're responsible for it. Okay, that's not just for Cain. That's for you and I. The creation order itself states that you're responsible for your sin. The fancy church word is culpable. 
you are responsible for your sin. Now, not your upbringing. You may have come from a rough family. You may be a first-generation Christian. You may say, I just don't know how to do this. This is going to be clumsy or whatever. Okay, cool, that's something. But you are responsible for your sin. My dad was this way. My mom was this way. Our family was nuts. Okay, you are responsible for your sin. Maybe you think, "Ah, but I was made this way. God made me this way. I'm just playing out the way that God made me. Maybe, but you're responsible for your sin. And maybe another one that's a, that, that we do, a shift, is our situation. I'm in a really tough spot here, a rock and a hard place, and every direction I go is probably going to be sin. You are responsible for your sin. Sin is crouching at the door. What will Cain do? Let's go to the passage. Will Cain crush the serpent's head? Verse 8. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother, Abel, and killed him. Yeah. Lord God, we like Cain, our sinners in nature and choice. We choose our own passions over your glory time and time again. Forgive us. Verses 9 through 14, the Lord speaks to Cain. A very interesting dialogue. Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother is crying out to me from the, from the ground. And now, though the ground was cursed, you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you you have driven me away today from the ground, and from your presence I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Hmm. In the book of Jude, the author refers to this downward spiral of Cain. In Jude 11, he says, Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain. Old Testament professor Alan Ross clarifies this way of Cain. He says it goes this way, and I'm not just going to like diagnose what's wrong with Cain here. This is for you and I. If you, you and I take the way of Cain, this is what it looks like. He says, when we look at Cain, we find that he, verse 5, became angry. And we, and we know that anger is not a sin. You can be angry. That's just a thing. Basing anger as your foundation for what you do after that, that's, that's the shift. That's what Cain's doing. That's what we do. He became angry. Then he rejected the Lord's advice, verse 7. Verse 8, he murdered his brother. We'll get to that uh, right after this. Uh, and then verse 9, he denied the knowledge and responsibility of his crime. He denied culpability. It's not, it's not me. I'm just doing. Verse 13 And he protested the punishment for it. He cries injustice to a God who is just. So I want to look at this part here, this murder part. Because for most of my life, I have read this and said, well, if I ever, you know, come across or counsel a murderer, then I'll know to give them this text. Not for me. Let's move on. We murder. And Jesus really helps us with this. In the Sermon on the Mount, he says, Well, you've heard it said, don't murder, but I say, 
if you hate, oh, now he's bringing a principle to the table. He says, if you hate, there you go. So because God loves us, because I love you, let's look at this idea of how we murder, even though it may not be the physical crime of murder. There are things that we murder when we don't get our way. When someone else is, when we're doing the same thing as someone else, Cain, Abel, and they get the glory. When you and your coworkers are just going and going and going, maybe the rat race, and all of a sudden your boss says, not you, that guy, here's the promotion. When you go and you talk to other families and you find out that it seems like those parents are better than us, or we're doing the same things, I thought, but why are their kids good and ours are bonkers? It's a thing we do. We do the same thing and we wonder, why is that marriage working? My marriage isn't. And we get jealous with people. And we go after things. We, we, we murder, so to speak, their reputation. We slander. We gossip. See, because we can't speak glory into ourselves that's lasting. I mean, I could talk about it, but it's arrogance. But I can't actually raise myself up so that others would see, right? So what we do instead is we just like, get on the, the king of the hill and we push everybody back down. That's our normal inclination of how we work. God lifts heads. God lifts faces. God glorifies and raises us up. But we just push down. We murder reputations through our gossip, through our backstabbing, through our slander. Maybe they are going to get the promotion, but everybody I know is going to hate them. We take it into our own hands. Or we murder their situation, their chances. They got a group project, and we only give them so many resources. Uh, leave it to their creativity to finish the project. Uh, even if we may have had it, we know when deadlines are, and we maybe are a little fuzzy on those because we know that might bring something else. We have a competitive nature, and so we want the other guy, the other business, the other whatever, to go down in a hard way so that we can get the clients. I uh, studied in college to about that level that was wavering between high and low. Those couple times that I was the one who studied most for the test, like very few, um, we'd be in a study group. And there was a moment where I thought to myself, I think I studied the most here. I think he said he's going to curve this. I think I'm the curve. If I help them but not enough, I've helped them, but I'm still on top. We do that with our parenting. We do that with our work. We do that in our church. And we need not to do that. Don't take the way of Cain. If those don't work, then we just go straight for the person. We, we, do, we do the flight response, and we just like shut them out. Or we do the fight response, and we bully. Oh, I thought we were talking about Cain. Seems like we're talking about Josh. It's a little uncomfortable. I got three more pages. This is going to take a while to get out of. But in God's judgment, in God's punishment, in God's discipline, he gives us a glimmer of his mercy, always. Cain says, I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. And then God says to him, verse, six, uh, verse 15, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, which is the Hebrew word for wandering. 
in the land of wandering east of Eden. I love how the Bible does that. He went wandering, just like you and I do. I don't think the name of the place was wandering. He just went out into a wilderness. He just went out because of what he had done. Isn't it funny that, uh, that, that Cain says, if I go out, someone's going to kill me. I mean, sorry, let's, let's go there. Like, aren't you like the third person on earth? Like, who's there? Who's going to kill you? I just, like, this makes sense. I'm not quite sure we need to ask the detailed questions there because in his heart, there's a maneuver he's making that speaks to us. Okay, I'm like Cain, so if you're like me or Cain, whatever you pick, I think that I am like the best person on earth. I'm the most virtuous person on earth. I'm the only person in my own mind that, that always makes the good decision. If it's a bad decision, by definition, I don't, I, don't, I don't do that thing, right? That's how we reason, right? Even if I'm doing something that's actually bad and you guys think it is, I'm still taking that because I think it's good, right? So Cain's the same way. We're wired this way. We always think we're doing the good. And Cain's saying, wait, okay, me, the good one, the always good one, always making good decisions, if I murder, <gasps> if there is anyone else on earth, they're by default worse than me. Oh, this is going to be bad. Isn't it interesting that we get anxious when we, when we gossip? <laughs> Comes back at us, huh? Isn't it interesting that when we slight people, we wonder if we're getting slighted? <laughs> isn't, it, isn't it interesting that when we withhold, we're suspicious of others withholding? That's the natural consequence of sin. If me, the good one, can do it, then I bet everybody else can. I mean, that's not a great way of thinking at all, but it's how we do. It doesn't matter if there's another person on earth. The fear of man is in Cain because he has seen firsthand what man can do. Who will crush the serpent's head? Definitely not Cain. But maybe he's being punished. He's going to this land of wandering. Maybe that'll purify him. Maybe that'll make him better. Will this change him? Will he turn? We'll go to scene two. Verse 17, the spread of sin. The title of this scene suggests no. Verse 17, and Cain knew his wife. This is the same language as verse 1. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. And then it says, uh, it says and, then he, uh, and when he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. That's great. Um, so he built a city. Pastor Tim Keller, he writes in a book called Loving the City. He speaks, uh, he really develops this theology of the city. He says, the first occurrence of the word city in the Bible is in Genesis 4.17, where Cain, after committing fratricide and be, being, set, uh, being sent away from the presence of the Lord, settles east of Eden in the land of Nod. Cain, the rebel, then builds a city. He then reasons, kind of the point that he's making, the founding of the city comes as the result of Cain's search for security in the world and also of God's granting his request. So Cain takes this fear of man and he institutionalizes it in a city. If I make a city, I might be safe. I just turn to God. Like, that's all I want to scream at him. Like, don't do that. Just <sighs> A city is a place built from the beginning of time on security. But that's not the only thing that, that, that the city is. It's not just a, 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 a result of the curse. So we'll go to verses uh, 18 through 22 here and, and understand what's more about this city here. 
And hopefully someone will come to rise in this city that can crush the serpent's head. Here we go, verse 18 through 22, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to summarize it. To Enoch was born Erad, who fathered Mehujael, who fathered Metushael, who fathered Lamech. There's our guy. And Lamech took two wives. Wait, two wives. I know if you read the Old Testament a lot, you're like, well, everybody had a whole bunch of wives, right? So here's the big polygamy question. What? What's going on in the Bible when they do this? Let's read this as literature. What have we read so far? Okay, we read it from the beginning to here. We've read one man, one woman, one flesh. That's what we know. That's what we've been given. And for this reason, a man will leave his family. Like, this is here. When we come across this, like keeper, like worker of the ground, this guy had two wives. That's shaping who this guy is. And this guy does not care about God. He does not listen to the voice of God. He's doing his own thing. Like, he invented this. Well, we even heard God say, and therefore have two wives. He's making this up. At this point in the text, he is proving to us he does not care. And we're going to see this gets really bad when you connect it to the power of the city. He doesn't listen to the voice of God. He only listens to the passions, James 4, the passions of his heart. And so we read on. The name of his two wives were Ada and Zillah. And Ada bore uh, Jabal, and his brother's name was Jubal. Like, seriously. Like, you don't have a whole lot of people. Like, were all the names taken? Jabal, Jubal? Like, get creative. It's ridiculous, says the man with three girls that all have E at the first name. It's so confusing. Sorry, I'm a hypocrite on that one. But he could have done better. Anyway, regardless, um, what do they do? One of them, Jabal, was a father of those who played the lyre. There's art. There's culture. Jubal was the forger of instruments and bronze. There's culture. These guys were the birth of culture and civilization. Was it the Bronze Age? Was it the Iron Age? Was it the weather? Okay, well, maybe there's something there. The city was this place of flourishing. Keller comes back and says, however, as can be seen in the line of Cain, these capacities under the influence of sin and rebellion against God can be generators of great evil. The city is not the problem. It's very powerful. And it can go for good or for evil. The Song of Lamech, Cain's descendant, shows that the Cainite city dwellers using all their advances to form a culture of death, end quote. Now let's read this dark song. Verse 23 and 24. Lamech said to his wives, Ada, Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man simply for wounding me. I have killed a young man simply for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Wow. Sevenfold. Then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. We read it to start our sermon here. I'll go back to it. James 4. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions, the word behind that is, our root, is the root word for, what we, for the word we use, hedonism. 
for your passions, for your, for your, for your uh, gathering of pleasures, for your satisfying of your own pleasures at whatever cost. Why are you fighting? Because you're just seeking to do whatever you want to do, what feels best. And those do not line up. They're at war within you. They're at war within the members of your body. You desire and do not have, Cain, so you murder. You covet, Lamech. You cannot obtain because that slap, that wound from that young man just told you, you're not God. You're not the Savior. You're not the big dog. You're not king. You desire and you do not have. You covet and do not obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly. To spend it all on your, there's the word again, passions. Oh, we take the way of Cain. I mean, even in preparing to preach today, I have to decide, like, what, which way do I go? Because I could pray, and I did pray. God, please help me speak with clarity. But then I had to pause and say, is it so that I'm seen as a really good preacher, the way of Cain, for my passions? Or is it that people might see that your blood speaks a better word? That we can end this cycle of Cain through Jesus Christ. What am I praying for? And that's just me today and one example in a sermon. We have to make that decision. Are you going to take the way of Cain or the way, I would say, the way of Christ in your parenting, in your discipline of kids, in your going to work, in your turning in of assignments, in the actual process of doing those assignments, in how you write papers and cite in the footnotes crediting the right source? How do you go about that, the way of Cain, for your own glory, or the way of God, so that truth may be seen, and when truth is seen, we will see God more clearly. He says, your desire for everyone to acknowledge your self-proclaimed God-like status, that you are important, that you are the most worthy. When a young man strikes you, you understand it as a sign that you don't have it, so you set the task of regarding and glory-giving into your own hands. Since you can't give the glory yourself, you choose to murder others. Will Cain crush the serpent's head? No. Will Lamech crush the serpent's head? Emphatically, no. So are we done? In God's mercy, he gives us a glimpse of hope. Who will crush his head? Scene three, a seed of hope. Verse 25, and Adam knew his wife. Similar language, and Adam knew his wife, and she bore a son, called him Seth. And then this is her reason, Eve, so smart. For she said, God has appointed me for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. Is Cain going to crush the head? No. Is Abel? No, he can't. Are we done? Like, can God do this now? God has appointed that it be done. He keeps his promises. This is something we do in the daycare here. We, we, we go through every Monday morning. We have chapel. It's so stinking fun. If you want to see me sing and dance, it's, it's ridiculous. Um, the, uh, one of the things that we, what I ask the kids, and they yell back to me, can we trust God's promises? And they say, yes. Can we trust God's promises? Yes. Does God, not, does God ever not answer his promises? No. Can we trust what God says? Yes. Adam and Eve, trust 
that the serpent crusher will come. And Eve rejoices and said, God has appointed for this to happen because the first two didn't get it done. Verse 26, to Seth also a son was born and, call, and he called him Enosh. And at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. That ends our text for today. And at that time, what I love about this, it's shaping Seth, but it doesn't say, and at that time, Seth began to call on the name of the Lord. So we know that Seth is awesome. It goes corporate here. The people in the way of Seth began to call on the way of the Lord. The trajectory is turning. We don't have, eventually we're going to find there is hope. We won't always choose the way of Cain in the line of Adam and Eve. And now Seth will come a serpent crusher. There is hope. There is a turn at the end of this. And that serpent crusher does come in the line of Adam, in the line of Seth. God does keep his promises. As we read in Genesis, we discover that no man chooses to crush the serpent. We're going to read uh, in a couple of weeks, Noah comes and he's great, but he chooses the way of Cain. And Abraham comes and he is great and he chooses the way of Cain. And then Joseph and Jacob and Moses, and they all end up at some point choosing the way of Cain. Now they turn and they come back. No man chooses the way of Christ. No man can resist the way of Cain. Now, what does the Bible say? Uh, all have sinned and chosen the way of Cain. Not exactly like that, but that's what it means. Except for one man, the God-man, the serpent crusher, whom the serpent bit on the cross and whose blood crushed the serpent. That's our story. That is the good news of the gospel. There is one who does crush. Now, a biblical principle. Always look in the New Testament for how it reads the Old Testament. And here, the author, well, I've already mentioned 1 John. Listen to Doug Fern for that one. Jude, I've referenced that one. Uh, Hebrews speaks of this. And I want to go there because the speaking that happens in Hebrews is wonderful. Hebrews 12 uh, verses 7 through uh, 24 give us that confident hope in how we can live uh, as Christians. And I'll read up to uh, where we get on this, uh, this passage that's on the screen. Uh, summarizing verses 7 through 24. It is for discipline that you have to endure. Uh, uh, resisting the way of Cain is going to take energy, is what it's saying. God is treating you as sons. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight the path of your feet. For you have not come to what, uh, for you have not come to what may be touched. So, so he's not always going to be far off, but you have come now to, he's here, he is now to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkling blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The author of Hebrews reads Cain and Abel, and somehow the Spirit inspires him to say, you know that character there that didn't talk at all? Lamech had a whole lot to say about himself. Cain had a whole lot to say about himself. Abel says nothing. But what does speak? His blood. His blood speaks. His blood cries out for vengeance. His blood cries out, make this right. And Hebrews is interpreting this for us rightly that we can apply it to know that the better word of Christ's blood is that Christ's blood uh, cries out, not make it right, but it has been made right. Hmm. The blood of Abel cries out a curse for vengeance, but Jesus' blood brings forgiveness 
and atonement. Commentator William Lane says it this way, Christ's blood accomplishes what Abel's blood could not achieve. It is in this sense that it speaks a better word of accomplished redemption and reconciliation. So what does that mean for us? What does that mean for us today, Parkview North? Two points. Uh, You have power over sin. You have power over sin. And then the big qualifier that you have to keep with it is, but only through the the resurrection power of Christ. No man can crush the serpent himself. Only Christ. Only those in Christ will have the power in Jesus' name. You are forgiven. If you are struggling with sin, welcome to the bizarre, cruel party. But there's hope. You can endure. You do not have to be stuck in the habit that you are in. I mean, I just look around and I hear, I I could see and remember stories of people saying, he broke the chains. It's amazing. I couldn't do it. And Christ did. I see clearly. I experience that freedom. Uh, Puritan, John Owen, he says it this way, we all have our mortification, our killing of sin from the gift of Christ, and all the gifts of Christ are communicated to us and given to us by the Spirit of Christ. Without Christ, we can do nothing. While sinners, while in the way of Cain, Christ died for us. Innocent blood cries out revenge. The innocent blood of Christ on the cross cries out, forgive them. They know not what they do. Christ's blood speaks forgiveness to us. Christ's blood also patterns forgiveness for us. I don't want to get stuck in a pattern where we always think that the gospel is just what God does for us. He's calling us to something else. We are conduit. So you can go away confident knowing that it's not your pride, it's not your arrogance, it's confidence that God has, has, has called you to be a people, a forgiven people, to go out and do something, to go proclaim this truth to people, to release the captives. And what does he pattern? It's interesting. Uh, you guys know I'm a total like nerd when it comes to reading the Bible. So the word 77 comes up in the Bible four times. There's fun trivia. Two of those times, it speaks to something like a, like a roster of like uh, how many troops there are, uh, how many sacrifices there are, okay? So we can set those aside. Two of those, though, speak directly to relationships, interpersonal relationship, 77. Lamech says, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77. You do me wrong, and I 77 you wrong. Christ comes. He could have picked any number in the world. He could have picked 78 or 79. He chose 77. Not so that we count so many times that we forget, which could be true, which is a good principle. Go with it. He chose 77, I think, to speak directly to Lamech. Peter asks him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Seven times? There's seven. And Christ says, no, Seventy-seven, forgive him. The way of Cain is vengeance. The way of Christ 
is forgiveness. If it's sin against you, you reflect God's image by forgiving. If it's not sin, then, then let it go. We hear in Genesis that we are, designed, we are not designed as rats placed in a race to determine the perennial victor. Rather, we're gardeners placed for God's glory to work together for the flourishing of our relationships, the keeping of our relationships, our culture, and our faith. So for you, if you are in the way of Lamech, if someone has sinned against you and you're thinking, burn them down, 77 of them. If you've been slapped, you've been wounded, you need to enter forgiveness. You need to enter, uh, you need to enter that. And, and I think it's easy for, for, to, to look at it and be like, oh, yeah, by the way, you have sinned against me. That's always the easier one, right? That's how we just operate. It's what if, we, what if we flip that? What if we were known as a people who modeled that? I think that I've sinned against you. Will you forgive me? I've done this with people, and there are two sides. When you're this forward, uh, there are two sides of it. Uh, there have been times that I, that I go to a brother and I say, I'm sorry, I, I sinned against you. And they're like totally blindsided. Like, uh, what? Like, I don't even know what you're talking about. Like, I don't know if I can forgive you because I don't even see that as a thing. I was like, sorry, I, I, I have to. I'm called, I have to. And so they're surprised because they don't think that I have. But then there are other times when I come and they say, oh, thank you. Like, this was bugging me. Like, I didn't know how to go about this because it's awkward. And either one, you've spoken a better word. But maybe, and so, and so I would say that with you. If you have something where you have sinned against someone, and I would say go there first, or if someone has sinned against you, I guess that's, that's good to go to. It is good to go to. I don't want to belittle it. Like, I think we can all think of someone right now because we all have taken the way of Cain that we need to work on. Like, you can name that person. Do something. <laughs> Do something. But if they haven't, sinned against you, then you may be in the way of Cain because Abel didn't sin against Cain. He just did something different and jealousy crops up. If that's you, if you're just, if you're just beat up, been out of shape for it, <laughs> get over it. I think that's, that's the best way. Maybe a catchy way that, to do this. It's so ridiculous and I cringe, but I continue to say it. Um, if you got a beef with someone that is not sin, eat your beef and move on. <laughs> That'd be a good one for me to remember sometimes. I get, I, get, I get worked up a bit. Take a deep breath and eat your beef. Regardless of where you are, put away your pride. Turn to Christ. That's the problem of Lamech. That's the problem of Cain. That is not the problem with Christ. Put away your pride. Turn to Christ whose blood speaks a better word.